0: And uh, I want to open up with the word of God. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, turn with me to Haggai. Okay, Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Uh, But if you turn with me to Haggai chapter 2, I'm going to read, okay, and you all follow along. So this is verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, asked the priest about the law, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Verse 15, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were, about, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blights and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, verse 19, is a seed yet in the barn. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. And all God's people said, amen. Can you pray once more with me? Lord, lead me today. Help us to understand that your words are good, true, and absolute. So speak into our hearts, for you are the living God, and in here is your living word. So we praise you, we honor you, Lord, we want to rejoice in your presence. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Okay, so uh, who needs encouragement today? Yes? What's your name, brother? Hosu? Hosu, Okay, it sounded like a Korean name at first. I was like, that's crazy. Okay, all right, so I want you guys to turn to your neighbor and say something affirming about them. Like if you don't know them well enough, then you can be superficial and be like, I love the density of your eyebrows or whatever, okay? Um, Okay, now, I think encouragements, they go a long way, don't you agree? Right? Like, with encouragement, with encouraging words, people do better in school. I mean, how many of you guys have critical parents, right? They think that hitting us and just peeling some fruit for us is, like, enough for (laughs) us to do, like, you know, amazing. But in reality, it's hard. So encouragements um, are great because it helps us. It goes a long way. It helps us even for those who need to kick a bad habit. It encourages us to do so. It helps us in overcoming obstacles, right? And um, it also helps us, you know, I remember back in high school, my friend and I, we went to Hooters Wings. This is before I I was a Christian. But um, we went to Hooters and there was a wing eating contest and I'm not that big of an eater, but my friend who was the quarterback of our football team certainly was. And so he went in and it was like, you had to eat within, I think it was like five, I forget, five or ten minutes or something like that. And so there were like all these burly big guys sitting next to him. He was pretty fit, but he was pretty lanky and just skinny. So there he was sitting and he just kept on going and kept on eating. And, and uh, I was encouraging him, I was like, dude, Walker, keep going, you got it, you got it. And, and he ate 70, 70 wings in like five or ten minutes, and he won, right, which is like amazing. And he wouldn't have done that if it weren't for me, right? <laughs> so um, I was encouraging him, and not only that, you know, I, my daughter, she, she right now is plugged into the YouTube right now, but when, we, when we're at home, we're constantly reading to her, okay, and we're reading these books, these children's books, and every page really is just filled with bright colors and is filled with a lot of encouragements about like walking, talking, bicycling, learning colors, shapes, animals. Every page has some sort of like positive remark. You can do it, right? It's like you got what color is this? Blue. Yay! Right? All these expressive, encouraging type of things. And we praise her, right? Wouldn't you? When when when, when our daughter first started began to when when she first started to walk, we would say, "Yes, you can do it. Keep going, keep going." Right? When she first started mouthing the word <coughs> mommy or daddy, we would praise her. We're encourage her. Why all these encouragements though? Because we want them to know that their success is worth the effort. It's worth the effort that they weren't just learning to walk or talk in vain. That growing and maturing and accomplishing, scoring that goal, winning that prize, gaining that grade as hard as it was, was worth the effort and that they should continue on in this course and trying to do their best and work hard. And so we want them to know how proud of them we are. Now, I personally just want to tell Melody, where are you at, girl? I want, I want you to know how proud of, of you I am, personally. And um, publicly, too, I guess, right? And so just, I think you guys have an amazing leader. And so I want you to not just, this sounds like, like, like a dad telling people to be friends with my kid. <laughs> That's not it. She, she's friends with you all. But it's good to encourage not just one another, but always the leader. The leaders need it the most, really. And I'm encouraged by her, and I hope that she's encouraged uh, by you guys as well. So I'll stop making her blush. Okay. So this is what today's text is all about. It's about encouragement for God's people who have really turned the corner, have turned the page in their lives. So these people, they've learned to trust and obey God, and it's gloriously uplifting in this passage. However, it begins really on a more somber note. Okay. And something I think we all need to listen to. So I believe the Lord has co- revealed a couple of points for us to hear today. My first point is this. Disobedience is not just a sin. It's a contamination. Okay, hear me out. Disobedience to God. The sin of disobedience is not just a sin. Okay? It is a contamination. So this is a serious point, right? All right, so let me tell you something about my wife. Okay? Um, She was in Navy for about five years, and so she was a naval physician. And so she took care of the Marines, because the Marines, they don't have a medical department, field, I don't know, whatever. Uh, But she also took care of Special Forces guys, right? It's pretty cool, like this huge, like, men of men, Navy SEALs. It's really cool. And I remember the time that we were engaged, and she introduced me to them, right? So she was down located in Virginia Beach, and whenever I would visit down there, uh, she took me to the clinic in Virginia Beach, and she allowed me to meet with them because they also worked with her and for her and things like that. And so um, I remember she introduced me to them, and they all, you know, gave me smiles, and I smiled to them. Also, Granted, it was in fear, and I was like, I was like, yeah, and all that stuff, and um, everything was fine. I left, and we all left, and I found later on the next day, really, that there was. Um, I asked my wife for feedback, right? What they say about me? Give me, give me the gossip. And so she said that. They loved you. I was like, uh-huh, but? No, they loved you, but? And she goes, okay, they had one complaint. <laughs> and that one complaint was this. And because here's the thing. These guys, they're fiercely protective over their loving, beloved doc, right? So they're very protective. This is our doctor, right? <laughs> um, and just, so they said, is a nice guy, but Doc Grace, uh, he has a weak handshake. She has a weak handshake. So, okay. So let me, let me tell you something. That made me question everything in my life. <laughs> okay, like Forget about even my masculinity or anything like that. That comment made me question my existence. It just felt so deflating. I was like, she's like, you okay? I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Right? <laughs> the whole time, the whole time, I'm just like looking at my hand. Like, this is so pathetic. Well, here's the thing. Um, I began to overcompensate. <laughs> By squeezing people's hands every time I shook him and stuff like that. But uh, I remember during her stint in the Navy, uh, we were able to go down and visit a naval ship, right? And she was stationed down there and we decided to take a little tour because they had this decommissioned ship called the USS Wisconsin. All right? It was decommissioned, but it was still very much powerful, still very strong, still full of technology and blah, blah, and stuff like that. But I, and I remember one thing I learned out of the many different things, but I learned one thing from this tour. And the tour guide, <laughs> who was a former vet, a retired vet, said this. He said, the body okay, of the ship had a honeycomb-like compartment. I thought that was interesting. Honeycomb-like compartment. This was, so in the case I ever got struck by a missile, okay, or a torpedo, or anything like that, that the water would penetrate through the first layer, obviously, because it would make that impact. But the steel around it would just close. It would close off, and it would seal and so that the only damaged area would be the only damaged area. that the water wouldn't leak out and other areas would be safe. You see, this is why the Titanic sunk so quickly. Because back then that technology didn't exist. So when it hit the iceberg, what happened? Water rushed in. There was no ceiling, right? No tight compartments and just flooded the entire inside. Now, what am I saying? I think for us, we tend to live our lives like the modern vessels. In other words, we like to have things compartmentalized because we don't want a troubled area spilling over into the rest of the other parts of our lives and bring disaster. In fact, we work quite hard at at that. We make sure that our work lives don't mess with our home lives and vice versa. Or we make sure that our school lives don't mess with our social lives and vice versa. But here's the kicker. Especially in regards to our faith, We really, for some reason, believe that we can seal off the spiritual compartment of our life. A place, and if we're to be really honest, a place that gets frequently damaged. And we think we can keep it from affecting everything else. It's kind of like a ship, okay, in terms of our spiritual Christian faith lives. It's like as if it's a ship, that we are a ship filling up with water with severe damage below, but the party just keeps on going up on top of the deck. And that's how we're living right now that there's something severe that's happening within us. Something much darker, a lot more serious. It's broken through the hub. It's broken through the, the whole of the ship of our lives, but we're still prancing around playing violin, and that's not to say anything about our violin here. <laughs> I was, I'm just thinking of Titanic, how they're just playing violin, and just relaxing. Of course, they, they were freaking out too. But you get my point, right? Now, what does our text say today? God says this. He goes, that type of lifestyle, that type of, Things going crazy, but you try and play it off like it's cool. We're going to compartmentalize our lives and and separate this. He goes, that's not going to work. Okay? We can't ignore and maintain or contain the damages of sinful disobedience to him and think that somehow life will continue on being blessed, comfortable, easy, cruising on, and unaffected. Why is that? Because he says disobedience to God, it will corrupt everything else. Now listen to me. Disobedience to God will corrupt everything. Every aspect of who you are. It will. But but of course, we don't believe that, do we? We say, "No, no, no, that's just my personal life. That's just my academic life. That's just my social life. That's just my family life. And that's just my church life. So God, he makes this point by sending his prophet Haggai to ask the priest for legal opinion and interpretation of the Old Testament law. So he asked two questions, okay? So hear me out. He said, first, if you're carrying holy or consecrated meat, does it consecrate the things that touches? In other words, does ceremonial cleanness, does it spread? And the second question is, if you are made ceremonially unclean or contaminated by, let's say, touching a dead corpse, which is always a big no-no, right? Do the things which then you touch also become unclean? In other words, does ceremonial defilement spread? Now, let me clarify this into a more modern term, okay? Raise your hand if you've got common sense. Anyone here? Okay. All right, what's your name? Nathan. Nathan. All right. So let me ask you a question, okay? If you have a sterilized medical instrument, does it sterilize the things it touches? Wonderful. Okay, here's my second question. Okay, If you have a contaminated instrument, contaminated medical instrument, does not contaminate the things it touches? Yes, you're to a lot more confident in that. Yes! Yes, now maybe some of you guys are not sure about the answer, but I bet you would probably want your surgeon or the nurse who's drawing your blood to know the answer. Right? You probably want that. So here's, here it is. The priest pretty much answered the way any doctor would. Purity, get this, Purity is not contagious, but contamination is. Okay? Purity is not contagious, but contamination is. And so God says, so it is with my people. Look at verse 14. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So these Israelites thought that their contact with holy things was making them holy. Okay? I mean... They had a lot of good reasons to think that. They said, we're God's chosen people. We have entered the holy land. We are also offering holy sacrifices upon the altar. We're also served by the holy priesthood. I mean, there's a lot of holy things going around them, so naturally they think, we're also living lives holy. We're also holy. Have you guys ever thought that too? At least I go to church. At least I go to large group meetings. I read Genesis Revelation, not just once, but twice. I'm actually a good person. I've done many wonderful Christian-y, church-y, wonderful, considerate things. Maybe some of you guys think that you're holy by association. I've got a lot of Christian friends. How many people have grown up in Christian households? Right? A lot of us have. And so naturally we think, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm a Christian because my mom and dad were Christian. Right? We have this type of association thing. In fact, I remember back in college, one of my suite mates, he was a, a white friend of mine. He asked out this Asian girl OK, um, well, she, yeah, she was Korean and uh, she wasn't interested. She wasn't interested at all. And he goes. But one of my best friends is Korean. <laughs> she was like, so. <laughs> so he comes to me later and he's like, that's what I said. I'm like, dude, like, I don't even like you anyway. So, OK, so we're saying stuff like that to make it seem like we're OK. Whatever contamination or defilement, let's just call it for what it is, sin is sin. We think we're fine because it's just a small sin. It's just a small hiccup, a small obstruction, a small white lie. It pales in comparison to all the goodness of who we are, to all the greatness of what we've done, right? It's probably just a phase, you might say. It's not a big issue. It's just a season in my life. This whole college partying, getting drunk, cheating, lying, sleeping around, stealing around, whatever. It's just a college thing. It's just for four years. It's no biggie. Me not committing to a local church and serving and sacrificing my resources and time and effort for God's ministry. This is... This is just my time away from all that. And once I graduate from college, okay, once I start applying for actual jobs, once I enter the rat race and enter the real world is when I'll settle in and settle down. Is when I'll start really taking my spiritual life, you know, seriously. But up until then, it's not a big deal. God begs to differ because here it says, On the contrary, your sin, your disobedience is defiling everything you do. You see, it's not just a part of us it becomes everything about us. He says, so much so that your, even your holy offerings are defiled. That's serious. Your casual attitude towards sin and your reluctance for spiritual growth and maturity, all that stuff is going to catch up with you. And so that defilement, those sins, that disobedience became evident when God brought judgment on their land because everything they did, it just failed. Now this is the evidence that we're talking about. Okay? Now maybe this is something you need to think about. What are certain areas in my life where it just feels like it's just not working out? And maybe you're thinking it's just not a big deal, but really think deep down inside. What are certain parts, arenas, aspects, facets of your life where you feel like it's just not working out? Whatever you do, there's like a roadblock. Even though you pray about it, even though you feel convicted that this is the right course, there seems to be some huge brick wall obstruction. And you're wondering why it is. Well, God, he said, guess what? I'll give you evidence for your disobedience. I'll tell you why. He goes, your gra- the grain was half what it should have been when they, harve- when they harvested. Wine was only a fraction of what they expected. Mildew and blight, which is plant disease, and hail, it plagued them. Nothing would grow. Nothing they expected to grow would grow. Nothing was living up to their expectations. There was no success in their lives. There were no accomplishments, no goodness. Everything just escaped them. Everything they touched died. Hear what God says in verse 16, 17. How did you fare when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10? When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there, there was but 20. I struck you all and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So what was wrong? God brought trouble on the rest of their lives. Why? Simply because of their disobedience towards a holy God. Their disobedience. Okay, so y'all probably thinking right now, this sounds like a sermon from 20 years ago. Because these sermons today and age, this, in this day and age, they don't talk about stuff like this. They don't talk about God brings destruction upon you or judgment upon you because of your sins. Right now, we're always talking about, you know what? You make a mistake, you don't have to do anything. If you sin, you mess up, no biggie. Why? Because God is a God of grace. God is gracious. God is forgiving. God is merciful. And nothing bad will ever happen to his baby. Nothing bad will ever happen to his children. Just pray your prayers. Just do all that and resume back to normal. Wrong. Friends, we need to hear this because God is saying right now, just as he said to his people, do the prophet Haggai. The Lord is telling all of us here I William and Mary to wake up because there is something going on in your life right now that has been, that has been so deeply rooted and it started off as just a tiny little seed. And we think we could just remove it and just place it in a certain, certain area, a certain compartment in our lives, but that's not going to happen because that's not what sin does. It pollutes and it infiltrates every other area of our lives. We can't buy God off with a few holy acts of yesteryear thinking, Lord, I know I have this, but remember, look what I did last time. I went on missions. God, remember when I shared the word, and evangelized on campus, and a couple people actually came to know the Lord. Look, we can't plead these type of things, our church status, our attendance here this evening while my, while my roommate is off partying and, and hooking up, and I'm patting myself on the back because I'm coming here and doing holy things. We can't do that. We can't plead our prayers and church services. We can't think that somehow the good will sterilize the bad in our lives. It's not going to happen. It doesn't work like that. And sometimes we can even deceive ourselves into thinking that our sins are contained and will have no ill effects. Why do we think that? Because only we know about it. So we think, as long as no one else knows about it, it's not that big a deal. But here's the thing: We find lawful security in our secrecy. But the truth is, God knows. God knows everything that's going on. And we can try to live safely, compartmentalize. The reality is this: that sin is like water that has breached our broken vessel. It will enter into the other areas of our lives and soon our entire lives will be consumed by it. So we must not downplay it. We must not. You know, brothers and sisters, sin was never meant to be played with and toyed with. It was never meant to be maintained and contained. Sin is described as a roaring lion, as the devil prowling around looking for someone to devour. It's at your door ready to pounce. Apostle Paul, he never says, try to contain, try to contain it. He doesn't say, try to domesticate it. You can't. We're told to resist it. We're told to flee from it. We're told to rule over it. We're told to squash it and kill it. You know that little private area of disobedience in your life that I don't know, that even your best friend doesn't know, that even your mom and dad, even your pastor and your counterpart partner probably doesn't even know? That part of you where you think it's relatively innocent because it's contained or that it's an issue that you'll deal with later on in life. No, according to this text, God says you're dead wrong. It's already begun defiling your mind, your heart, your desires, your spirit, your actions, your words, your everything. God has spoken to you all today because he's saying enough is enough. Enough is enough. It's time to address it. Call sin for what it is. It is a sin and turn away from it. Come, he says, and be cleansed and forgiven. Brothers and sisters, what was the purpose of the cross? A lot of people will say nowadays, because Jesus Christ, he loves you this much. Right? That's what we say. This is how much he loves you. That's why, that's when he stretched, we we say he was, he, he died on the cross, he was up on the cross to be a good example for us. Or did he die for the purposes of actively forgiving and cleansing those defiled. Actively forgiving those who are defiled and freeing us from further contamination. The cross is active. The death of Christ is active. Now hear me out, people. Our text says something else about what sin is. Because it's not about adultery, stealing, or murdering, although that principle was still applied to those things too. But do you know what these people, the children of God, the Israelites, do you know what their sin was against God? It was the sin of omission. What does that mean? It means this. They neglected the things of God. They're like, I don't care. It's not a priority. They were too busy doing their own stuff. How many of us can attest to that? How many times have we just been like, God, I am busy? I got my own things. I got my exams going on and all that stuff. I just, I got my own stuff. And so these people, they're just finishing their own work, never got around to the things of God. They had no concern, no interest in building God's temple and the things of God, knowing God, making Him known, evangelism, personal spiritual disciplines, praying with one another, pers- pouring into one another, loving others, serving each other, discipling, all those things, the things of God were assigned a low priority in, our, in their lives and, 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 and let's be honest, in our lives as well. Right? I do this, God. I'll, I'll go this far. But all this stuff here, I just, I can't give it to you right now. This part of who I am, I can't surrender it to you right now. These people, you see for them, God's agenda, it didn't matter because they're in favor of what their own personal plans were. And God says this I will not tolerate it. Enough is enough, and I will not tolerate it. I'll bring ruin to the things that you deemed more important than me to make you realize that these things will fall short. Things like success, fame, fortune, pleasures, your own comfort. All these things God says, He'll bring disaster to remind us that nothing, okay, nothing is greater, no one is better than God. Why? Because God, our God, will not take second place in our lives. He will not. He will not allow, as a heavenly loving, faithful father, allow to see his children bring idols into their lives and say, This is my God. He will not. I want you all to know something about the Christian life people. There is no such thing as comfortable Christianity. Turn to your neighbor and say, Don't be comfortable. <clears throat> Really. If you think you can be comfortable and a Christian, then you've been duped by the modern Christian sensationalistic prosperity, health, and wealth teachings. It's a message where it says you can have two masters. A Christianity that demands no priority in our lives, that costs us nothing, that changes nothing within us, is no Christianity at all. Really. It's a false gospel. And how can I say that? Because God, not want, he doesn't want second place. He demands first place in our lives. He doesn't call us to love him with partial hearts, partial souls, partial minds, and partial strength. He says we're called to love him with all our soul, all our hearts, all our minds, and all our strength. Every part of who we are, he says, it's mine, devoted to me. He forbids us to love anything else more, the world or even ourselves, more than God. So for us, we may think that sounds pretty radical, if not fanatical. Maybe some of you guys are thinking, "But well, Petey, of course you're a pastor. You would be saying something like this. But hear me out. For those of you who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and the moment that you accepted him, the moment that you called Jesus Lord was the day, the moment that you have given everything up to him. You know, my wife and I, we, um, have you guys heard of medieval times? Of course you have. It's an amazing place right? Medieval Times. If you've never heard of it, look it up. It's, it's literally what do you think it is. It's, it's, a, it's an arena where people joust and battle as you eat with your hands. The, uh, pretty much they have like one menu. It's like chicken, right? Whatever they ate back in Medieval Times. Uh, if you want a little bit more in-depth understanding what it is, watch the movie Cable Guy. Anyways, okay. <clears throat> so we want to, uh, Grace and I, we want to take our children there because it's this is fun family atmosphere, and our daughter's now of age to kind of really enjoy and experience that kind of stuff. Well, we tried to go the other day, and we couldn't. Um, various things came up, so I called them to reschedule and say, we need to go some other time, so can you credit us for a different date and all that stuff? And what was really interesting is, on the other line, is that is the operator of the facility of the restaurant, and it's interesting, because she had to stay in character. Okay, So, so I said, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, we can't make it tonight. Can we, can we postpone or move it to another time? And she replied, one moment, my Lord. <laughs> okay, and then, and then she put me on hold. So, <clears throat> so Grace was sitting there, and I told her what the woman said. And then Grace looks at me and goes, what, you want me to call you that? <laughs> and I said, yes. And then she says, never, for I only have one Lord in my life. Right? Well, yes, obviously. I think that sometimes we forget that the moment we accepted his grace of salvation, we said, Jesus, I like that ticket of salvation, so I'll call you my Savior. I need to get to heaven. I need to get to, into your presence. So I will accept you as my Savior, as the one who has saved me. But when I say you are my Lord, what does that mean? We sometimes forget that. Calling him Lord, you are my Lord, is, it's you saying essentially, my life is no longer my own. You are my Lord. It's, it's yours. I am yours. You've made me. Now you've bought me. I'm doubly yours. Okay, so the people of Haggai finally realized the error of their ways, just like many of us have. Eventually, if you keep reading, they began to rebuild God's temple. They listened to his warning, and finally they put God first. And so here's my second and last point. God sends Haggai to encourage them. And here's the second point. <clears throat> Repentance brings us back to God. Repentance is not just some archaic term that we do once in a while on on the Lord's Supper Day or during revivals or something like that. It's a daily spiritual exercise. Daily. Okay, so have you guys ever been in a situation where you try to fix something and it just gets worse? Yes? Yeah. Like for instance, that's like me with computers. Okay? Uh, But even personally, even through our small problems, it seems to escalate quite quickly whenever you try to fix or solve things. If you've ever offended someone, have you ever tried to confront them, but it ends up backfiring, and they hate you even more? <laughs> right? Right. So it makes situations even worse, and here's the thing. Our relationship with God is kind of like that too. We try to patch things up. We try to get our lives together, try to make ourselves a little bit more acceptable to God, but as we do that, More time passes by. More opportunities seem to get lost. Maybe we even end end up forgetting about our responsibilities, our other tasks, other disciplines. And to make matters worse, as we learn more about God and about ourselves, we find that that God is just so crazy, awesomely holier than we could ever have dreamed of. And seeing his holiness just makes you see how much more sinful we really are. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This, This happened to me on several occasions. And what sucks is this. When I realize how great and awesome and holy God is, there there have been times where it has driven me not towards Him, but away from Him and towards despair. Now I'll explain. When I see how awesome God is and how serious this business of ministry is for me as a pastor, sometimes I say, man, God, I'm really a messed up person. Like, my heart is pretty jacked up, Lord. Or I think... God, I am. I see others, great pastors. I mean, uh, Jesse and I, we visited the Village Church. We got to hang out with uh, Matt Chandler. It was really cool. If you don't, he's a mega church pastor, complete has great influence and stuff like that. And you see someone of like that caliber, and you're like, man, that's like a pastor. And you see yourself, and you see how just inadequate you are. And when I see the holiness of God. Like as holy as Matt Chandler is, and I saw how short I was in that respect, I see the greatness and even holiness of God, and I see really how small I am and how inadequate I am and how horrible I am in many ways. And it makes me even question every other aspect of my life. I'm a horrible father. I'm a horrible husband. I'm a horrible person. And you may think I'm being just really just too harsh on myself, but the more I see who I'm serving as perfect and holy, like I I desperately don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to disappoint. So I begin to see all these negative and sinful things about me. And I don't know why. Maybe it's like a defensive mechanism. Where we just lay out our inadequacies and failures and say, See God, see how wretched I am? See how I shouldn't be where I am? See how you shouldn't be using me to serve you? See how I shouldn't be doing what you're asking me to do? Have you guys ever thought that? I'm, I'm such a horrible, such a, I'm such a hypocrite. Like right now I'm thinking, I don't even deserve to be standing here talking to you. There are so many better, holier, better pastors out there who have lived untainted lives, who have lived more righteous lives, who should be speaking words of God to you. Not me. But this passage, let me tell you, passage is just so good. Because here we find that in the midst of our hopelessness and despair, in the midst of our struggles and failures, if we repent, God forgives. And we return back to him. So hear me out. God doesn't wait for you to get your life together. He doesn't. He doesn't wait to see if you're, so that you become worthy of his blessing. He's not waiting for you guys to finish your, your college degree, get married, have a career, fix your addiction, resolve your family conflict, conflicts, and then come to him. He's not asking you to come to him perfectly polished. No way. No way. Because if that was the case, then you wouldn't even need a savior. So what does God ask of us? He asks us one thing. For all of us broken vessels, he says, turn around. Turn around. Stop neglecting me. Whatever that you're doing, that sin, turn around. Stop disobeying me. Turn around, he says. Stop loving and stop pursuing after these other things more than me. God, he calls for a change of mind to start calling sin a sin and reject it, run from it, squash it, rule over it, but don't try to contain it. Don't try to compartmentalize it. But God also calls us to act in faith, to believe and trust him, especially as those acts of faith will lead us out of our comfort zones because, like like I said before, Christianity is not comfortable. And so when we repent, you and I, we don't have to wait in terror wondering if we've done enough or if God is happy or unhappy. No, when we repent, it's because of his kindness, that simple act of repentance, which is a simple act of faith, it returns us back to God. It returns us back to God. And it restores our fellowship with him. So the encouragement Haggai gives his people is this. He says, remember this day or consider this day. In other words, remember every day of God's grace and holiness and kindness that leads you to repentance. He says, remember it, consider it, reflect on it, and know that God, by his grace, blesses us. It's not about our desire to complete our work and to be polished, but it's about the completed work of Jesus. Always think about that. That's the gospel. It's not about what I've done, but what he's done. That's why in Romans 4, we're told, to the man who does not work but trust God, his faith is credited as righteousness. So maybe some of you guys and going to end with this. Some of you guys are discouraged. Because some of you guys, I was talking to Melody and Gabby today, you guys had a hard week. A lot of you guys had exams, a lot of work, a lot of all-nighters. Some of you guys are trying to wrap up your semester. It's Thanksgiving right around the corner, so you have that to think about and going up. And there's there's like a lot of stuff right now. And perhaps there's a lot of family issues that you'll be going back to. Maybe there'll be a lot of financial issues that you had to start kind of mulling over and thinking about how I'm going to deal with this too. Maybe there's a lot of just personal with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or something like that. Something that's going on and you're discouraged. Maybe you feel like you have grown so distant from God, you're just miles away from him, miles away. And you're thinking, what can I do to get back? And God says, nothing. You can't earn my favor. You can't jump through hoops. You can't jump to get my hug. He says, have faith. Rest in the completed work in Jesus Christ, my son, who live for you and died for you and in your place. That's the crazy thing about the gospel message. You know that? Yes, we have to turn away from sin. Yes, we have to understand what it's, what's eating up inside and we have to repent of it. But foundationally, the, the basis of our entire faith is simply this. Do you actually immerse yourself in the presence of your, of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you on a daily basis say, Jesus, take my heart. Jesus, I need your strength on a daily basis? Or do you find yourself daily saying, I got it. I got it. It's my life, I'll take care of it. It's my problem, it's my issue, I'll deal with it. A famous Christian singer who, once, who long since passed <clears throat> wrote a song, his name was Keith Green. You probably have heard of him. You can YouTube him, okay? Um, in one song he sang this. He said, My son, my son, Why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what I've done for you. I did it all when I was dying. My son, my son, you can't add one thing to what I've done for you. Let's pray. So Father, I just want to lift up these friends up to you. and um, Maybe this wasn't exactly what they need to hear or want to hear before their Thanksgiving break. But we believe that you have spoken. And I just pray now that we would hear and listen. I think for far too long, especially in our generation, that includes mine is that we've watered down the impact of sin in our lives to the point where it has lingered for far too long. And even as we've grown and matured in many different ways, that root sin still remains. And so often, it would rear its ugly head and affect us in the most horrific ways, leading to greater and eventual just spiritual instability lack of faith, skepticism, doubt, unbelief, you name it. See, there's no such thing as a big sin or a little sin. There's no such thing as a not-as-bad sin. And until we're willing to call it for what it is, Lord, then we are unwilling, I think, to come before you. So I pray for conviction right now, because every single soul here, including even the most righteous-looking person, the person who always seems to say the right godly holy things, even the person who's memorized the entirety of scripture, even the person who says the most poetic prayers, even the person who's the one who's constantly counseling other people, and the person who's everyone goes to for advice and for just fellowship, that one, even no matter who we are, Father, there is something in us that is constantly trying to keep us away from you, that's constantly trying to distract us from you And God, you being a jealous God, you say, I will not be second in your life. I will not allow this idol to take precedence. No, I am first. I am not only good, I am better. I am best. It is me you want. It is me you need. And until we're willing to repent and know that, understand that, our lives will continue to be in disarray and chaos. And like the Lord said here in Haggai chapter 2, Yes, oftentimes destruction will come to remind us that things in life, when we invest in it, when we commit our entire lives and our entire being, saying, this money or success or worldly acclaim or academics or grades or, or sex or pleasure, all these things, these are my gods, we will soon realize that they are nothing, that they fall short and that they'll leave us wanting more, unsatisfied, dissatisfied, and broken. It is only when we say, God, you are everything we need. It is only when we say, God, you have given me everything you need through your son, Jesus. And we take pleasure and we take rest in him, not just weekly, not just in moments, but daily, is when we'll finally understand our restored relationship with him. It's finally when you'll understand what it means to find joy in your salvation. It's finally when you will understand what it means to be a child of God who knows his, her father, his father, and cries out, Abba. God, you love us. And you first loved us, and we thank you for your faithful commitment to us. That even though the, the walls around our vessel breaks, and even though the sins in our lives continue to flow throughout our being, God, you are good and merciful and forgiving. You will free us. You will forgive us. But that only happens, Father, when we're willing to take that step and say, God, do this in me. Brothers and sisters, I want to give you guys just a brief moment. You know your prayers. You know what the Holy Spirit's saying. You know what you're being convicted of. You know what sin is in your mind right now. It is that very sin, and don't try to say, I'll deal with it later. It is that very sin that God is making known in you right now. And he's saying, give it to me. I will free you from it. That's why my son died on the cross, to free you from it. Let's pray.